0: Yo, technology, what is it all about? When you think of all the challenges over the last 20 years of this thing going into and out of fashion in one sense, to find the largest two trading blocks competing with each other to attract those companies and to scale up this green industrial revolution. It's an amazing thing.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. We are here for your last installment before our summer break. On the show this week, we have Sean. Kingsbury. Now, for climate tech nerds, you will know him as the former CEO of the Green Investment Bank, which was started more than a decade ago. It was a really interesting idea when it was started, uh, started by the government in Britain, to really fast forward the green transition by funding projects others wouldn't. Others in kind of, you know, the private markets just wouldn't touch because they're too risky, they're too expensive, they're too hard. And the result was that the bank catalyzed a huge wave of investment and really catapulted Britain to really the forefront of cleaning up their energy infrastructure and that has continued the green investment bank made very good returns and it was sold to macquarie big australian investment bank and infrastructure investors so it was just a, a big success all around that people have since tried to imitate and after that kingsbury was you know looking around trying to figure out what to do next and he saw that there was a whole bunch of other big industries like cement and steel making and aviation that needed to have the same type of boost That the Green Investment Bank had given to wind all those years ago. So he got together with Generation Investment Management, a firm started by Al Gore. And last month, he raised a billion and a half dollars to basically do the Green Investment Bank 2.0. But basically, so kind of stepping in and funding really hard, big, meaty, difficult projects and companies. But this time, he's raised money from institutions, not from government. And the things he's focusing on, again, are these harder to clean up So it's a really interesting idea. It's an interesting time. And Sean has just really uh, kind of unmatched insights because he's been doing this whole green investment thing for, you know, something like a quarter century now. So I think you'll get a lot out of this. And as you'll soon hear, I've known Sean for, for some years now, going back to my days back in London. So I just think what he's doing is really interesting and really relevant, especially as we're baking here in the summer. So here he is, Sean Kingsbury of Just Climate to send us off to our summer halls, Enjoy. We go back many, many moons. Of all the people I've had on this podcast, you might be like one of the people I've known the longest because way back you used to run the Green Investment Bank. Back when that was like a thing, like a new thing. And then I've obviously moved out here and now you're doing a new thing, which is why you're on the pod. But um why don't we just start with like the green investment bank? Because um, as people in this podcast, listen to this podcast know, I used to cover energy and mining and oil and all the big dirty stuff when I was living in London all those years ago. And that's how we, our paths first crossed. So what what were you doing in that world and what was the green investment bank?
0: Yeah, thanks, Danny. Uh, I think we go back a while just because both of us are getting old now. <laughs> also true. It's also true. But no, the Green Investment Bank, where we first met, was uh, was actually established here in the UK. Uh, it was headquartered in Edinburgh, and we had an office in London. And it was set up to deliver for the UK a really interesting challenge. When the coalition government came in, and back in 2010, actually, before they arrived, they did a study and they looked at how much capital the UK would need to deliver on its 2020 program. renewable energy, 20% reduction in carbon emissions, all by 2020. And that number was a huge number, it was 330 billion pounds, I remember it. And so if you divide it by 10, there were 10 years, even I could do the math, 33 billion a year. And when we looked at what we were investing in the UK, it was about 14, 13, somewhere around that number, around 40% of what was needed. So, the Green Investment Bank was established. It was supported actually by all the political parties, but came in during the period of the coalition here to really go and to try and bridge that gap, to crowd in as much capital as we could, and to build out the clean green infrastructure the UK was going to need to hit its targets. And with five years of doing that, very quickly we became. I guess the biggest investor here in the UK, we invested in waste-to-energy, biomass-to-power, energy energy efficiency. But the thing that we spent a bunch of time on, and almost half of the capital was invested, was offshore wind. And we saw that uh, come down, and and so that's a really interesting model, because we started offshore wind when it was about 155 pounds a megawatt hour, when the cost of regular power was 50, so three times the cost. And by the time we finished building out 910 projects and the market built another 9 or 10, the cost had fallen to £39 a megawatt hour, so a 20% discount. 39?
1: 39
0: was the bid price, yeah. Wow. So we took 70-ish percent of the cost, out, and we went from being three times the cost of conventional power to being a 20% uh, discount. And a green premium is exactly the same green premium we need to take out today in Concrete and steel and sustainable aviation and, and all of those things. So it's a really great model, and in one reason is one of the, the reasons I'm really here at Just Climate, hoping to do the same thing we did it in the Green Investment Bank for offshore wind, in a bunch of other places.
1: First of all, the, you mentioned the coalition government, which gives me flashback because I haven't even heard, I haven't even like thought of that that kind of turn of phrase in so long. But that was when. Um, Folks like Sir Nick Clegg was uh, part of that coalition government. Now he's, of course, I, I interface with him as the chief kind of corporate affairs guy at Meta. So it's just funny how uh, the world moves on. But you mentioned the 2020, 20 targets. Did we hit those?
0: We came very close. I think actually I need to go and check what the final calculation was. But certainly for things like offshore wind, we surpassed the targets. You know, we've got over 10 gigs of offshore wind now. And until a couple of years ago, we were the leading country in the world for offshore wind. China has surpassed us. It's got a lot more coast, by the way, so that's easier. But we made that contribution. And the thing that I guess really stuck around about the Green Investment Bank, it was it was a model that other countries saw. It was admired and copied around the world, state by state, where you are in the US at the moment, and country by country everywhere else. And I think there's, I don't know, I stopped counting, but 35 to 40 of these green investment bank-like institutions actually around the world at the moment, all doing the thing and doing it well. But there are two two problems, I guess, with that model that let me describe, because they actually lead on to why we set up just climate. The first of those models is they're backed by government, either state government in the US or national governments elsewhere. And the the first problem with that is, of course, that uh, governments don't have enough money. They certainly don't have enough money before COVID and they they really don't have it after COVID. And so we've got to find a way to tap the deeper pools of capital to solve these problems, which is institutional money. It's the money that your pension's in, that my pension's in. We need to tap those markets. And of course, the second uh, problem with that model successful as it has been, is governments have national or state borders. And this is an international problem. This does not stop at the edge of your uh, coast and it does not stop at the edge of your state. And so could you find a way of replicating, if you like, a little bit of the success we had? Could you find a way of replicating a way to invest in these hard things. And offshore wind was very hard at the time.
1: Yeah, it was very, very hard.
0: But a way to bring in the capital that's the deepest pools of capital and to do it just as we did it at the Green Investment Bank in a very commercial manner, but to deliver great impact and great profits. Because if you could do that in the same way that we saw that business model for a green investment bank replicated and admired and copied. Could you create a style of investing, and we call that style of investing here, at just climate, climate-led investing, that equally could be admired and copied, and we could create a new asset class around making great returns, great impact from uh, making investments into these areas, and that kind of core of truth is, is the center of what I'm doing, not just on it.
1: And are you optimistic? Because you know the introduction is all about like kind of where we are you know, rising ocean temperatures and all these like heat waves we're having right now and all of these increasingly dramatic events that we're having to deal with on a daily basis. I'm just wondering where you think we are because it does feel like almost like we're a bit like, you know, too late or we have to really sprint. How do you think about that when you're running this new business?
0: Well, I think things are definitely tight when you look at timelines and what the carbon budget that we have left is if we're going to stay on track for a one and a half degree world. But I, I guess I am an optimist, I like trying to take these challenges on and address them and try to do things that uh, that can make a difference here. And so if we can see the sorts of model I just described that we saw an offshore wind here in the UK when I was at the Green Investment Bank, if we could take 70% of the cost curves uh, down those 70% of the costs of things like SAF and long-duration energy storage and chemicals and concrete and steel, and do that in the next sort of five or six years, as we saw that curve and offshore wind, then all of these things can be significantly decarbonized. I mean, let me give you an example. I think mm-hmm. an example is always useful in these things. Yes, We're an investor in a company called H2 Green Steel. And H2Green Steel is in the process of building what will be, you know, one of the world's first hydrogen plants that will use hydrogen as the decarbonization uh, vector to decarbonize steel production. And we can take 93% of the carbon emissions out of manufacturing steel. And steel is important.
1: Yeah, because so just so people understand, to make steel, you have a gigantic blast furnace which is exactly what it sounds like it's just you know 2000 degrees and it's usually burning coal or natural gas
0: yeah coking and coal and you use the the carbon in the coal to take the oxygen off the iron oxide now this is about the, the limit of my chemistry right but you get co2 and <laughs> yeah. you get iron if you use hydrogen you get water and iron
1: so hydrogen is the fuel that basically fuels the fire so to speak
0: It fuels the fire and it's the reduction agent, it's the agent that grabs the oxygen off the iron ore to produce green iron. And if we can build this plant at scale and these things are big, this is a 5 billion euro in round numbers kind of project way up in the north of Sweden. And the reason it's up in the north of Sweden is because The grid up there is very green already. It's in the high 90s percent because you've got lots of hydro and lots of wind up there and virtually no fossil fuels. So you can put it up there, you can uh, bring the iron ore there, and then you can produce green hydrogen and use the hydrogen to uh, reduce the iron ore to green iron and then you can use an electric arc furnace not a blast furnace that runs on green electricity again and turn that into green steel and you can decarbonize that you know 93 94 95% And then you can sell that. Now, that's got a green premium attached to it. It costs a little bit more, just like the offshore wind example that I gave you, only it's sort of in the 10 to 20% more. It's not in the three times the cost kind of model. I see. And you can sell that then to people who are manufacturing electric vans or electric trucks or electric cars because they want something with an embedded carbon footprint, which is zero, as well as zero tailpipe emissions. So today they buy regular steel and buy carbon offsets. And in this case, so they're already paying a premium. In this case, they can buy green steel. And so if we can roll these technologies out, and 10 years ago when we first met, if you'd asked me, are there technologies for green steel that you can implement today? Are there technologies for long-duration energy storage to store the renewables uh, overnight? I'd say, you know, they're emerging, but they're not here yet.
1: Yeah, well, that was going to be my question because... And this, it feels a little flippant to say, but like, you know, people are saying, well, you know, now that we're like the electric car revolution is kind of on the road, if you pardon the pun. And then you also gave the energy example with wind and solar now becoming as cheaper, cheaper than fossil fuels, which is, you know, awesome. And so the common idea is like the easy stuff, not that, that any of that was easy, but the easy stuff has been done. And that this next phase or part of the economy is just much harder. Because as you say, we're talking about 2,000 degree blast furnaces and stuff. Like, how do you do that in a green way? But it sounds like you are convinced that there's a lot of these technologies that were science experiments that are now ready for prime time. So that, that's realistic.
0: I think there are. Not, not for everything. You know, Something like cement and concrete is still quite hard to do at scale. But there are solutions for this. But it generates then, it goes from being a technology challenge to being a financing or a funding challenge, right? And there's execution and operations. I don't want to underplay that. And the challenge you see is the traditional capital allocation buckets for this sort of stuff don't work. You know, you will have seen many people have a venture capital bucket, which does very, you know, very risky things, but put small checks in. Or they do growth capital. They love investing in IT and all the stuff that you cover from the valley. And then there's infrastructure, you know, people who will build renewables or bridges or railways or things like that, but they take very limited risk. And the problem with all this stuff is it's really too big for venture, it's too asset heavy for growth, it's too early for infrastructure, and so it hasn't been funded. Maybe areas that cover 50% of the emissions, roughly, only receive about 10% of the capital allocations because it's hard. So you've got hard to abide and that's the technical challenge you've outlined, but you've now got hard to finance because of the traditional capital allocation buckets that don't fit for this kind of stuff.
1: I'd love to just understand the founding story of Just Climate cuz also you're involved with Generation Investment which goes back to Al Gore and his, you know, original for lack of a better term, you know, the trying to kind of ring the oh shit alarm globally around climate, which is 20 years ago now, 19 years ago, something like that. Yeah,
0: generation's been around almost 20 years. And it's just over that since the inconvenient truth. Think,
1: the inconvenient yes. truth. Exactly. I'd love to understand how this came together. And then how raising money was because as you say, it's kind of like Venture capital, they're not going to touch this with a barge pole, and it's also kind of difficult for some of these other traditional infrastructure investors. So I'd love to understand that part of it as well.
0: So it we came together in really two ways. I had been, uh, since we sold the Green Investment Bank, looking at these harder to abate areas and trying to figure out if we could really have the same impact as some of them that we had on offshore wind, which I've outlined. And here at Generation, they were looking at how we can have Deeper climate impact. How can we do something that goes even further than some of our existing products and funds do? And so I started working on a strategy piece for this, and they'd been working on one. And we got to that one of those really hilarious moments where I sent them a deck saying, "Hey, David and uh, Collins, so and David Ludd, who's the senior partner here, I've been thinking of doing this. What do you think?" And an hour later, they sent me back a deck, and. We looked at it. and We said, "Hey, this is the same idea." Now, their charts were much nicer than my charts, but it's just the same idea. So that started then a conversation about, "Well, we should maybe think about doing this together," you know. And that's that's what we did. We uh, we established Just Climate just over two years ago. I came on board, and we've been building the team and raising the capital. And it's it's a business, not a fund. Our first product is a uh, fund to look at industrial decarbonization. But this is a business it's majority owned by generation and the rest of it's owned by us the the leadership team if you like the partners in the business we decided to focus first on the industrial side so we look at energy we look at buildings we look at mobility we look at industry and to raise a fund that would focus on those And we had to ask for i guess a few extra bits and pieces so first of all we said we would like to have a fund that would focus on the hard bits. So this is a new team and we're going to do the hard things. So that would usually make people quite nervous.
1: For sure. (laughs) Um,
0: Then we said, we are going to invest in companies and in projects. So when people said, well then, should we fund this out of our infrastructure bucket or out of our growth bucket? And we said, well, wherever you think it fits best, but we are going to do both. And so sorry, that's not an easy fit. And then finally we said, because these technologies are on an S-shaped adoption curve, you know sometimes it takes a little bit longer, and then sometimes it goes a little bit faster than you expect. Instead of having a regular 10-year period in which we could invest the capital, build the businesses, and harvest the capital, we'd actually like a little bit longer. We'd like 15 years. So we had some unusual elements to the structure of what we were asking for. Fully flexible capital, much like the capital I had at the Green Investment Bank, but exactly from those types of people who I said we should target if we wanted to solve one of those problems, we need to go to institutional capital. So we have we have investors who are sovereign wealth funds. We have investors who are corporates. We have investors who are banks. We have insurance companies. We have foundations. We have all the type of people that we want to come with us on this journey and help find these solutions. Because if we can create the technologies and build the first and second of them, Of a kind plant, then there's a huge job of rinse and repeat that needs to follow. And we're thinking about
1: that. It sounds like, you know, given all of those unique criteria, it was not, you know, fundraising is never straightforward. And you guys raised a billion and a half dollars, which in the grand scheme of things is not much relative to what is going to have to be invested for us to kind of truly address climate change. But it also is not a small amount of money. I'm wondering what pushback or vibes you got while you're out raising money, because especially around the things like ESG, like I was just in Florida on a story just about Ron DeSantis and all the crazy things happening there. He's made it past a law to make it illegal to invest in things that are ESG driven. For example, like ESG has been wrapped up environmental, social governance issues has been wrapped up in this culture war piece in a really surprising way, but it's very real. And I'm just wondering, did you see any of that? Did you experience any any of that? Or were you kind of just getting in rooms where people already just moved past that anyway?
0: For most of the conversations we had, we had them at very senior levels, because we were introducing a new concept. In in one sense, we want to go further than a broad brush sort of sustainable ESG kind of wrapper, because we want to go to a place where there's intentionality. We're not looking for things which meet minimum criteria. We are looking to purposely go out and solve those things that need to be solved if we're going to make a dent in the climate change challenge. And it gives you a very different perspective when you get up in the morning. So we're not trying to get up and say, oh, we found this great business. It's really interesting. Is it green enough for us to put it in the fund? We get up in the morning and we start the research and we say something like, okay, how are we going to decarbonize aviation? What percentage of planes are going to run on batteries? Well, maybe the short haul ones will run on batteries, okay, but that's a small market. Then maybe there's hydrogen leading to fuel cells, so how's that going to work? But then for many of the journeys that we may take, certainly transatlantic journeys, you will need sustainable aviation fuel. So we map out what's the size of each of those markets. Then we say, how can you make sustainable aviation fuel? Well, there's a pathway that uses fats, oils, and greases. There's a pathway that uses alcohol. And then there's a pathway that uses waste, and you gasify it, stick it through a complicated process called fissure drops, and you get fuel out the site. And each of those will have its own challenges around the capital cost, the operating costs, and the availability of feedstock. And so having done that, then we go and understand each of the companies, which are the leading technology providers or the leading marketers of those fuels, and we decide which one we'd like to work with and how we back it. So it's a very different thing that we do. We get up in the morning to solve those problems, finding those businesses, which I would describe at the tipping point, where the technology is proven. And of course, that's where the judgment is. But it's not yet bankable. You can't walk it down to your local project finance house and say, will you build those? Because usually the first question is, well, can you show me 10 that have been built? And if the answer is no, then then you have to do it the hard way. So, So that's how we are different. That's the approach that we take. And so when we went and we had those conversations with people, we were going beyond the discussion or the debate on a general ESG or sustainability wrapper, we were saying, There's a huge need for this capital, there's a huge opportunity because, of course, there's much less of it flowing, and it needs to flow at scale. And if we get these companies right, and we repeat what I saw in offshore wind, we will need tens of billions. And for the large pension funds, the large institutional capital, of course, they're interested in what we're doing. But what they're also really interested in is, how do we create a new asset class? Offshore wind went from being a side story that no one was willing to invest in, to an asset class. What is the next one? Is it sustainable aviation fuel? Is it long-duration energy storage? Is it charging as a service? Is it low-carbon concrete? And if it is, then we need to have this massive rollout plan once we get a process that works. And that rinse and repeat is the way for them to deploy capital and see the sorts of returns that are interested. It's hugely different.
1: Are you investing at all in adaptation? Or is this more about... We need to solve these things. We need to clean this stuff up. We'll leave the adaptation, which feels like adaptation is going to be a large part of our reality. Just even if everything you do works and everybody else with everything else we're working on works, that just feels like a reality.
0: Adaptation is not part of what we're doing with this first industrial business. I think where we go next after the industrial side is to think about nature and the role that nature can play and getting that in balance. If you like the industrial simplified, the industrial fund is around reducing the emissions which are pumped out. And then with nature, as well as all the co-benefits of getting nature back into balance, we can create low cost ways of removing that carbon permanently from the atmosphere. And so as we think about that, investing in sustainable agriculture, sustainable forestry, restoration of forests, and then all the supply pinch points that need to be filled. So if you wanted to restore what was originally rainforest in a piece of degraded cattle pasture in Brazil, you might say, well, we know what a rainforest looks like when it's built and it's functioning. But if you went down and say, well, I guess first we need some trees. So if you go down to the local nursery and you say, can I have some indigenous trees? They'll say, well, we can sell you a pot plant or a sunflower, but uh, we don't sell indigenous trees. How many do you need? I don't know, 2 billion? (laughs) It quickly becomes, a pinch point in getting this done. And we know these ecosystems when we see them flourishing and they're working. But if you were to try and grow one from scratch, does it need irrigation? Do you plant the trees which grow fastest or slowest first? How do you create the shade? People haven't built a rainforest. I purposely use that term, it's used <laughs> in Congress, but but yeah. people haven't built a rainforest. So if we're gonna create an industry that restores these things that generates all the co-benefits that we would expect, as well as locking up the carbon, removing it permanently from the atmosphere, and at a lower, you know, much lower cost, then that needs to become an industry. And this feels very much, to me, like renewables felt 25 years ago when I first got interested in that. We're going to need local developers, they're going to need offtake agreements, we're going to need to estimate, just like we did with wind and solar, how much energy would be produced, how much carbon will be stored. You're going to have to sell it. Do you sell it now? Do you sell it in the future? Can you borrow money against it? These are all of the things that we went through in the nascent early days of renewable energy that we need to go through now as we think about nature and the opportunities there. So first, industrial decarbonisation. Second, nature-based solutions. And if we can get those things you know, up and running and scaling, then maybe the next challenge could be adaptation. But it's not where we're focused today.
1: You mentioned we've never built a rainforest, which I like that kind of framing. Um, you know, I'm sure you've been to a rainforest. I have. I mean, there's no way you can kind of build that thing. <laughs> it made me think are you also working on food? And people who've listened to this podcast know that I have a great interest in kind of all things, you know, lab grown meat and this push to upend or replace large scale industrial agriculture. Because when you're talking about rainforest, I believe that is the primary driver of deforestation of the amazon is basically clearing space for cattle that we eat or to grow the plants that they eat that then we eat so i'm just wondering is that part of your you know your purview or kind of when you think about industry industrial decarbonization if that falls in there
0: it probably will be part of a nature-based business, looking at sustainable agriculture and in all of the elements of that. And again, that's an emerging business that we're, we're kind of interested in. We're looking right now what we could do, what would the investment strategies look like, what type of capital would you need? Again, flexibility, I think, to both invest into the technology, the top co of these things, and then to engage in the rollout of projects and uh investments below that, so the sort of flexible capital concept we have here for the industrial decarbonization I'm sure would we'll play there. And look, if we get this right, what we can really do is, is is the most simple and fundamental thing is to produce great returns and great impact. That That's kind of the base case. But if we get it right beyond that and we can find the solutions for whole industries, you can decarbonize industries, you can create an industry for sustainable aviation or long-duration energy just like we were able to create offshore wind by getting those first projects right. And if we get those right and we have delivered decarbonized industries, great returns, great impact, we can create an asset class, an investment style of investing that then people, when we come to raise more funds or others, just like the Green Investment Bank was admired and copied, I hope that 10 years from now, we have many just climate lookalikes because we are never going to be able to raise enough money to solve this problem. But if we can show that you can invest this money well and deliver the impact and deliver great returns, we need to deliver great returns, because that's what will cause the institutional capital to flow to solve the problem. So we feel the responsibility of that, but I've been fortunate enough that I've seen one of these work before to create a style of investing the Green Investment Bank. And that was admired and copied. And in one sense, that's a model for what we're trying to achieve here.
1: Yeah, and it feels like, I mean, say what you want about Elon Musk, but I mean, he has driven, you never do anything single-handedly, but he has almost single-handedly driven the electric car revolution. And it feels like part of that is like people just looked at, one, the product works and is in many ways superior, and just look at the value of his company. And so when you talk about how you push these changes through, it's really about, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about dollars and cents, probably more than anything else. If you can prove like, actually, you can make a ton of money if you get this right.
0: And look, you know, maybe it's the wrong analogy, but maybe we can create the Tesla of green finance here. You know, we really need to move capital at scale. I said, unlike many other Investment houses who've got a green product, who get up and say, you know, that's a great business. Is it green enough for our fund? We start the other way. We get up in the morning and say, right, what are the challenges we see in developing sustainable aviation or long-duration energy storage? Or reducing uh, the consumption of power in motors? That's where we start, and we, we work through all of these. We understand the impact, and then we go and we hunt down those businesses and figure out, because we've got all this flexible capital... If they need an investment in a Topco, we can do it. If they need an investment in a plant, we can do it. If they need some sort of clever, structured mezzanine financing, we can do it. We have this flexible capital. And I hope if we can show that that's what you need to focus on this area, you don't need the traditional buckets of venture capital, growth capital, and infrastructure capital, then we can get some of the largest asset owners in the world to have Allocations to climate. And that allocation is flexible and it's not some sort of soft capital bucket. It's fully caffeinated investing. And they're putting the money there because they'll make great returns and great impact. And they're not choosing to say, well, you know, we can provide some sort of concessional financing or funding. Everything we did at the Green Investment Bank was fully caffeinated. We had to do that under the state aid loop. And we showed that when we sold that business. It was bought by a fully caffeinated investor. And so what we want to do here is show that you can, you can really make great and appropriate risk adjusted, attractive risk adjusted returns from investing in these areas.
1: If sitting here today in July 2023, of all of the things, all, all of the areas of focus, are there one or two where you're like, man, if we could crack that that would be a huge win and that would be like, that would really prove that what we're doing here is both meaningful in terms of climate impact but also like this is a huge win financially as well and I don't know if it's sustainable aviation fuels or one of these others. I mean I know you're focusing on a lot but are there one or two that, that are really kind of prime focus for you guys?
0: I guess the uh, one of the ones I'd love to see us get to work properly is long duration energy storage. So we all know renewables are now the cheapest form of energy production in most countries. Most countries have a little bit of sun, a little bit of wind, enough to make it really work. But the challenge is, of course, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine reliably. And plus, even if it's sunny, it gets dark at night. And so you have a real problem running 24-7. And the way we deal with that today is either backup power, which is typically fossil. Or we use lithium-ion battery packs, the same battery packs that may be in your electric car. And so those those work fine. They're good for short duration energy storage. And by that I mean two or three or four hours. You can't stack them for longer, but then you have a problem because to build more and more storage, you need more and more packs. And so you have a straight line correlation between the cost and the cost of energy. And so, you know, the the longer you need to store the energy, just the more expensive it gets because you need more and more battery packs. If you think of an alternative way that most people will have seen of storing energy, which doesn't have that straight line, it's something like hydro. We're all used to dams, right? And once you have a dam, you, you, you spend money in creating the dam and the facilities and then the, uh, the turbines to take the water. But the amount of water you store in it, it doesn't really cost you much more. And so you have a line that flattens out, if you think the more energy you store, in one sense the marginal cost gets to almost zero because it's just water behind the dam. But most of the best places in the world that you can dam have been dammed, and we need need to find an alternative. So could we find something that had the same sort of cost curves as hydro? But would allow us to store energy like lithium ion batteries and that area you know generically is called long duration energy storage and we've been looking for interesting technologies things like compressed air things like thermodynamics things like electrochemical batteries but ones which are much much cheaper than lithium ion where you would be able to store 10 hours 15 hours maybe two days maybe three days and if you can get that to work, you can much more quickly retire the fossil fuels because you've got a stable system and one that will support. So I guess if there's one area that uh, that I'd like to see that the world is ready for today, it's that long duration energy storage. And look, there's, there's a few technologies are right there. And we're continuing to search through those and stack them up. Each one has a different capital cost and a different operating cost or different concerns around the materials that it uses and their sustainability or their availability. And so it's not it's not easy, but that's one that uh, I think the world's ready for today.
1: I just have a couple more questions. One of them is around carbon capture and storage and this idea of, for those who don't know, it's kind of like... Basically, you stick on something to capture the exhaust of a power plant and then trap the CO2 and pump it under a salt cavern underground, basically cleaning up the exhaust or trapping the exhaust rather. There's that one option. And then there's just ambient carbon removal from the surroundings, which is very difficult and very expensive. Where does that fit, the kind of carbon removal piece? Because that again, I've been going back to... 2008, when I started writing about energy, people were talking about, we need carbon capture. If any of this is going to work and we're going to save ourselves from total planetary disaster, we need to capture the exhaust of all of these big power plants and everything else we're creating. But I just don't know where we are in 2023 on that or where, how you guys are thinking about it.
0: I do believe it will become an important part of the mix as we head towards a net zero future I haven't seen a plan that, you know, for example, here in the UK, the Committee on Climate Change has a number of budgets that they produce. And it's very hard to find one of those that gets to net zero without some degree of carbon capture and storage. And there's two types. There's you know, point source capture, exactly as you said, capturing the CO2 when its concentration is much higher in the exhaust uh, of fossil fuel plants. But of course, it's still not that high because there's still a lot of nitrogen mixed up in that and a bunch of other things or if you wanted to tackle the challenges of direct air capture, where the concentration is 425 parts per million, or wherever we are today, it's even harder. And so there's a role that nature can play in that as well. And that's one of the reasons that we want to focus on that because you can remove that carbon at much lower costs if you scale up or restore nature at scale, but st- restoring it at scale has not really happened yet. And when you look at, the costs today of capturing carbon through reforestation or something like that, it's a much lower cost per ton than direct air capture is today or point source capture is at the back end of a power plant. But those technologies will need to come down the cost curve. We're looking at several of those technologies, one that could be used exactly as you say on the at point source on a power plant. Still quite expensive and direct air capture. There are newer things. There's things like rock weathering and things like that where where you're able to capture the carbon. So there's some nature and natural ways of doing that as well. And maybe with another few years, we might see the large scale industrial plants. You know, there's ones in Iceland, for example, today, that capture this and, uh, and store it deep underground. What they found as well is if you put the CO two once you've produced it into water and pump the water underground, it doesn't rise. It doesn't. It's not like a you know a can of soda underneath that you know effervesces off the CO two. Right. That water sinks down and it actually mineralizes over time and becomes very stable rocks in it, in as little as two years. So if you can capture it, dissolve it in water and pump it into porous rocks and we know a lot from another industry about drilling and pumping things, Um, we should be able to store large amounts. I just haven't seen yet a technology that we're comfortable because of the high costs at the moment. They've all got really interesting cost curves to come down, and we need to make sure that uh, if we make an investment, we're really conscious of how quickly it can come down, those cost curves.
1: Lastly, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, That feels like a very big deal. I was wondering if you could speak to it. For those who don't know, the Inflation Reduction Act was like, you know, passed by Joe Biden last year. And the estimates are that it will be roughly a trillion dollars of tax cuts and subsidies for all kinds of green technologies of all shapes and sizes. How big a deal is that just in terms of in your world? And do you see the UK or Europe, you know, trying to match that in some way?
0: I mean, it's a huge one, right? It's one of the biggest packages ever seen. And it's very, very comprehensive and focuses on a number of industries from green hydrogen to carbon capture and storage to renewable natural gas. All of those things have a carbon intensity, which this piece of legislation is designed to provide additional subsidies and things to get down that cost curve and to scale up. It's a tremendous thing. I mean, I've never seen in all the years of renewables a piece of legislation in those sectors that took a long time to grow, that matches this in terms of its... Uh,
1: I mean, you said you're going back 25 years. Can you even imagine that being an actual thing?
0: No, you you, you couldn't. <laughs> and, and what's amazing is, of course, now Europe needs to respond. We'll see yeah. what the UK does, but Europe needs to respond. So here you've got these massive two trading blocks outdoing each other to support technologies to solve the challenge that we've been talking about. I mean, what a wonderful thing. So... It's an incredible thing. I think it will have a dramatic impact on the US market. If you're building a company today with one of these technologies we've been talking about, why wouldn't you go and establish those manufacturing things in the US? Of course you'll do that because you'll get support and some help. Europe will uh, will respond and is responding uh, with pieces of legislation that will support green hydrogen and things like that. And we'll see what the UK does. Being outside Europe, of course, it's a little bit more difficult for them to put the scale of uh, capital that would be necessary. And that will be a disadvantage for sure for scaling up technology uh, at at the kind of numbers we want. So I'm a huge fan of that piece of legislation. Our next two investments, I think, will be in North America and in the US and should benefit from this. It's an exciting time. When you think of all the challenges over the last 20 years of this thing going into and out of fashion in one sense, to find the largest two trading blocks competing with each other to attract those companies and to scale up this green industrial revolution. It's an amazing thing.
1: Cast your mind back 25 years. Is there an example of like, you know, a technology, not if it was solar back then or if it was the beginnings of onshore wind, could you give a sense of like how expensive that stuff was? Because I think also people don't fully realize when you just talk about offshore wind going from whatever it was, 155 to 39, that feels very dramatic. But I think if you zoom out even further, it just shows what can happen when things start to really scale up.
0: I can think of some of the early wind turbines that were out actually in, uh, in California, in Colorado which had little tiny towers and wind turbine blades, which were a matter of meters, 10 to 15 meters in length. These things were uh, really 330 kilowatts, 250 kilowatts. And today, these offshore wind turbines are 12 megawatts. I mean, they are 50 times bigger. It's incredible. I remember when we at the Green Investment Bank built what was then the largest wind turbines, and they were six megawatts machines, and they had 75 meter blades, single cast, and that's now over a hundred. If you can imagine running the hundred meters, and all you're doing is traversing a single piece of carbon fiber to get to the end of the blade. I mean, it's astonishing. And every year that's on the a you want and they say oh well, this is the biggest and it will probably be because we're reaching the point where you know it's trailing off and and there's not going to be a bigger someone just adds 25 percent to it and produces a machine which comes down that cost curve even more you know so it's been incredible to watch it's been incredible to watch solar it's been incredible to watch lithium-ion batteries coming down that cost curve making electric cars so much cheaper. We need to get hydrogen, we need to get storage, we need to get steel, we need to get uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And I can keep going for the next 20 minutes until everyone's so bored. We need to get them all <laughs> down that cost curve. Yeah, And that's what we're trying to do.
1: But then that's why you're optimistic, right? Because you've seen it happen before.
0: I have indeed. One of the few joys of being old in this business is we have seen some successes <laughs> as well.
1: And that is all the time we have. I wanna thank Sean for taking the time. I wanna thank you all for listening for the ratings, for the reviews, for everything. For telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast and keeping it alive after all these years. I do appreciate it. As I said, I am now off for most of the rest of August. Keep your eyes glued toward the end of this month. I will be back with a whole new slate of awesome guests. I hope you guys find some time to rest, to relax, to not get too sunburned. And that is it. Thank you, thank you. And we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Bye-bye.